Welcome, and thanks for listening to the Harvest Lakeshore Sermon Podcast. For more information about us, visit harvestlakeshore.org. King Belshazzar made a great feast for a thousand of his lords and drank wine in front of the thousands. Belshazzar, when he tasted the wine, commanded that the vessels of gold and silver that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken out of the temple in Jerusalem be brought, that the king and his lords, his wives and his concubines might drink from them. Then they brought in the golden vessel that had been taken out of the temple, the house of God in Jerusalem, and the king and the lords, his wives and his concubines drank from them. They drank wine and praised the gods of the gold and silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. Immediately, the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace opposite of the lampstand. And the king saw the hand as it wrote. Then the king's color changed and his thoughts alarmed him and his limbs gave way and his knees knocked together. The king called loudly to, loudly to bring him and the enchanters and Chaldeans and the astrologers. The king declared to the wise men of, the Babylon, of Babylon, whoever reads this writing and shows me its interpretations shall be enclosed with purple and have a chain of gold around his neck and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. Then all the king's wise men came in, but they could not read the writing or make known to the king the interpretation. Then Belshazzar was greatly alarmed and his color changed and his, and his lords were perplexed. The queen, because of the words of the king and his lords, came into the ban- banquet hall, and the queen declared, O king, live forever. Let not your thoughts alarm you or your color change. There is a man in the kingdom in whom the spirit of the holy gods in the days of your father, light and understanding and wisdom like the wisdom of the gods, were found in him. And King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, your father the king, made him chief of the magicians, enchanters, Chaldeans, and astrologers because an excellent spirit, knowledge, and understanding to interpret dreams, explain, explain riddles, and solve problems were found in, his, in this Daniel, whom the king named Belshazzar. Now let Daniel be called, and he will show the interpretations. This is the Lord, word of the Lord. You may be seated. Thanks, Ange. King Belshazzar is how it starts. Just for a little bit of uh, clarification, uh, Daniel is his name. uh, He was renamed Belteshazzar, and this king is called Belshazzar. I realize probably as I've preached some of the other messages, my pronunciation has probably not been as clean as my English teacher would have liked. And you may have heard me say Belshazzar, but I was actually referring to Daniel. But today, to be clear, When I say Belshazzar, I'm referring to the king. And when I say Daniel, I'm referring to Daniel. So just clearing that up a little bit. As we've studied this book, uh, we have seen unfolding gospel truths. God's faithful to care for his people in chapter one. God continued provision for his people in chapter two. God showed his abiding presence with his people as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were in the fiery furnace. And God's gracious dealings were on display for those who humble themselves and repent. And that's what happened with King Nebuchadnezzar at the end of the last chapter. But the story turns. 
to a subject that's often hard to swallow. The same gracious and faithful God that we've been studying, who is a loving God, must also address those who do not repent and those who reject his ways. So I know this is going to be hard, but there are some 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 things to learn from here, and there's definitely hope for us to get even in a hard chapter. So let's jump into uh, this text and get a feel for some things in the text that you wouldn't necessarily jump out at you uh, in, in just nor- normal cursory reading. So just to give you some context, uh, King Nebuchadnezzar, who we've learned about thus far, has likely been dead for about 20 years when we get to this place. We're not exactly sure. And it's probably been about 70 years, give or take, that Daniel has been in exile, right? At the beginning of the book, they had just come into exile. And so we're already in chapter five and he's kind of 70 years in. Uh, Daniel was, uh, is now an old man, probably 80s-ish. Belshazzar was powerful. He was the undisputed ruler of Babylon, which was known to have dominated the ancient world thus far. Outside the walls of Babylon, as this story gets started, is the Persian army. The Persian army had been out there for some two and a half years wanting to conquer Babylon. So that's what's going on right now. So they're feeling a bit of invincibility. Remember, as we studied last week, the walls around Babylon were about 300 feet high, about 75 feet wide. So as we come to this text, the king is very confident that they're fine. The enemy's been outside for two and a half years. These walls are impenetrable. We're good to go. Babylonians were actually known when they conquered other peoples, they would put siege works around the cities and the towns of the people that they were going to conquer because they would kind of put these earthen mounds around them. They would, they would circle around them and they basically cut them off from the outside world, wouldn't let them out to get food, wouldn't let them out to get water and basically starve them to death. So they did the exact opposite. They build this huge wall, but everything inside allows them to be self-sustaining. The landmass inside was large enough that it could grow food. The river Euphrates even flowed through the city, supplying fresh and ample sources of water for people, for cattle, for crops. Babylon could not be starved into submission. So needless to say, Belshazzar feels pretty safe. Nothing is going to touch him. And so he throws a party. Look at verse one. King Belshazzar made a great feast for a thousand of his lords and drank wine in front of a thousand. It was like he was saying to the outside intruders or those that wanted to come in, it was like he was acting uh, like when David and Goliath encountered one another. Remember Goliath, when he encountered David, he said, Am I a dog? Do you come at me with sticks? He arrogantly was like, you can't touch me. And so throwing this party is kind of like that kind of arrogance of what we saw Goliath say towards David. That's 
how arrogant he was. It made him feel invincible, even invincible to God. Look at verse two and three. Belshazzar, when he had tasted the wine, commanded that the vessels of gold and of silver that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken out of the temple in Jerusalem be brought, that the king and his lords, his wives and his concubines might drink from them, that they brought in the golden vessels that had been taken out of the temple, the house of God in Jerusalem, and the kings and his lords, his wives and his concubines drank from them. Now, I don't have uh, replicas of the vessels from the temple, but I do have something that's silver-like that holds stuff that they would have drank, right? It wouldn't have looked like this in the temple, but you can kind of get the feel as you read this passage that, that these items were used in holy service to God. And this king was taking these items, which were reserved for, for only a group of individuals that were set aside as priests to minister before the Lord. Only they could touch it, and they went through lots of processes to make sure they were clean before the Lord, before they even used these things. And this king just takes it, says, fill it up. Put my wine in here. And it says they drank wine and they praised the gods of gold and silver and bronze and iron and wood and stone. The arrogance would have been similar to the arrogance of some of those who helped build or man the Titanic. It's, it's said that one woman, when she was boarding the Titanic, asked a crewman of the ship whether this ship was really unsinkable. And the individual who worked on the ship said, God himself couldn't sink this ship. And that is what he was doing. He was saying by drinking out of the vessels, God himself can't even touch me. But we could even almost imagine, I mean, they're in this party, they're drinking. He's probably drunk or highly inebriated as he is saying these words, toasting, maybe staggering a little bit because he's had quite a bit to drink, his fingers clenched around the vessels, throwing his head back, showing everyone I have a grip on even God. Maybe he pounded his fist on the table or he wiped his mouth off like this just because, just fill it up again. That's the image of what we are encountering as we come to this passage. But then everything changes. Look at your Bibles. Immediately, the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster wall of the king's palace opposite the lampstand. And the king saw the hand as it wrote. And it says, immediately, the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall. And the king's 
color changed and his thoughts alarmed him. His limbs give way and his knees knocked together. So going from a man who arrogantly is holding tightly and declaring how awesome he is, he's shaking. You can imagine his knees are shaking and he can't stop them because of what has just happened. Bring Bring the wise men. Bring the wise men. We're having a party here. Bring the wise men to come. Tell me what is going on. Nobody could read the message. The color of his face changed. The color. Maybe it went pale. Maybe he dropped the vessel on the ground. The queen seems to have saved the day by saying, there is someone, there's an individual who can interpret your dream? It doesn't see, say here that that brought a lot of comfort. He's still shaking. The arrogant king is reduced to a nervous, afraid child. I mean, even in this passage, when it says his knees knocked together, most English translations translate it that way. But rather, it, it has the connotation of he lost his bodily functions. There was a puddle around his chair. The ruler of the most powerful nation in the world. But the scene changes. Look at your Bibles at verse 13. Then Daniel was brought in before the king. So the party has been halted. There's lots of confusion going on. The leader is, is more like jello than he's like a leader. And the stark contrast Daniel walks in. Daniel walks in. Likely, the, his face is, is weathered, creased from age, maybe walking slowly. But this is not a man who's afraid to be in the presence of a king. He'd been in the presence of a powerful king before. No, he likely walks in the room confident. Maybe slower, but the stride that he is making shows no fear. He has peace and calmness about him. He's the only one in the room that's likely thinking clearly. And he stands before a man who is probably decades, maybe even 30 or 40 decades younger than he is. So the older man is the one standing confident and the younger man is the one shaking uncontrollably. And then King Belshazzar speaks and he musters up an attempt to be commanding. And he says, look in verse 13, the king answered and said to Daniel, you are the Daniel one of the exiles of Judah, whom the king, my father, brought from Judah. 
I have heard of you, that the spirit of the gods is in you and that light and understanding and excellent wisdom are found in you. Now the wise men and the enchanters have been brought in before me to read this writing and make known to me its interpretation, but they could not show the interpretation of the matter. But I have heard, I've heard that you can give interpretations and solve problems. Now if you can read the writing and make known to me its interpretation, you shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around your neck and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom." Now, as he says this, it's not really coming likely as a reward for something. He's, he's wanting a favorable answer. I'm going to give you all of this. Speaking probably more like a slimy, dishonest politician than he is like a king. So he attempts to manipulate Daniel by offering him some extra bling some nice digs, and a sweet job. That's what he's offering him. But the mature Daniel is not impressed. Look back at your Bibles. Then Daniel answered and said before the king, let your gifts be for yourself and give your rewards to another. Nevertheless, I will read the writing to the king and make known to him the interpretation. Daniel isn't swayed by what the king is trying to offer him. He knows his God has provided for him time and again. He doesn't need any king to give him anything. But even in the presence of a king who I'm certain he did not have respect for, he respects the office and he honors God and he interprets the dream. And he says, O king, the most high God gave Nebuchadnezzar, your father, kingship and greatness and glory and majesty. And because of the greatness that he gave him, all peoples, nations, and languages trembled and feared before him, whom he would be, whom he would, he killed, whom he would, he kept alive. Whom he would, he raised up. And whom he would, he humbled. Hey, let me remind you, there was a king greater than you that came before that whenever he wanted was done and this would happen to him. But when his heart was lifted up and his spirit was hardened so that he dealt proudly, he was brought down from his kingly throne and his glory was taken from him. He was driven from among the children of mankind and his mind was made like that of a beast and his dwelling was with the wild donkeys. He was fed grass like an ox and his body was wet with the dew of heaven until he knew that the most high God rules the kingdom of mankind and sets over it whom he will. And you, so he turns, he's reminding him. And then he turns and he addresses him. Probably looks him straight in the face. He's not impressed by all the glamour and the glitz that's going on around. And he says, and you, son, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, though you knew all this. 
He's standing before the one who could speak and kill him. And Daniel speaks straight with him. You knew better. You knew this story. This isn't news to you. I'm not telling you something new. You knew this to be true. But you have lifted up yourself against the Lord of heaven and the vessels of his house have been brought in before you and you and your lords, your wives and your concubines have drunk the wine and you have praised the gods of silver and gold, of bronze, iron, wood and stone, which do not see or hear or know. But the God in whose hand is your breath and whose are all your ways, you have not honored. And he goes on, he says, then from his presence, the hand was sent. So from the presence of God, this hand, we don't know exactly what it looked like, but it clearly looked like a hand. And it came from the presence of God to write on the wall. And this is what the writing was inscribed, as it says in verse 25, mene, mene, tekel, and parson. And this is the interpretation of the matter. Mene means God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end. Tekel, you shall be weighed in the balances and found wanting. Perez, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. I don't know about you, but I've never had anything like that read to me. I have a hunch that my response might be to further fall on my face. But this king says, then Belshazzar gave the command and Daniel was clothed with purple. A chain of gold was put around his neck and a proclamation was made about him that he should be the third ruler in the kingdom as if Daniel didn't just say what he just said. And that very night, Belshazzar the Chaldean was killed and Darius the Mede received the kingdom being about 62 years old. In just 31 verses, the greatest nation in the world is overthrown the most powerful leader in the world is killed. This would have sobered the original hearers and it should sober us. There's a contrast, clear contrast between an arrogant king and a humble servant. And so though we should be sobered by this text. There are some truths that we can learn to respond differently than the king. So let's just give five characteristics of a humble servant. One, a humble servant listens to the warnings of the past. Remember in verse 22, and you, his successor or his son, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, though you knew all this. He knew what not to do. He knew what would happen to kings who didn't honor God. But humble servants learn from history. 
Humble servants learn from the mistakes of others. Humble servants learn from their own mistakes because they know that idolatry never delivers. Idols tarnish or they rust or they rot or they can burn. They can't speak and they understand that. They understand, as we look back at Daniel chapter 4, the last verse, said, Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven. This was after he was basically acting like an animal. And it says, For all his works are right and his ways are just. And those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. Those words would have resounded I don't know about you. There are things that happen in any family or culture. There are events that take place that everyone just remembers that. You know, everybody, everybody would have remembered. Yeah, remember? Remember when the king, his hair grew long like bird's feathers and his nails grew out like talons and he acted like an animal? Remember? And after that, he declared God can humble anyone. You don't forget a story like that. But this king ignored it. So let us learn from the past, even if it's just from this story. Let's learn and not not walk the same path that others have walked. Let it be a warning to us, as this was put here in our Bibles, to be a warning to the readers that read this originally and for us. Let it be a warning to learn As I read through the Old Testament in my Bible reading plan, it's just again, and some days I'm like, boy, I just just don't want to read about judgment again. It's just, again, I'm reading it, whether 1 Chronicles, 2 Chronicles, just again, oh, now, now I've got three months reading in the prophets, and all they're doing is telling people, hey, God's going to come and bring judgment. God's going to come and bring judgment. There's plenty of warning. Let's heed the warning. Two, a humble servant acknowledges his dependence on God. Look at verse 23. But you have lifted up yourself against the Lord of heaven. And towards the end of the verse, he says, but the God in whose hand is your breath and whose are all your ways you have not honored. So that's what the king did. He didn't honor God, but here's a reality. In God's Hands is our breath. You can live for quite a long time without shelter or adequate clothing. You can live for months without food. You can even live for a weekish without water. But you can't live but for minutes without air. And in God's hands, He holds your breath. He's the one that gives us breath. And whose are in all our ways. It reminds me of Psalm 139, verses 1 to 4. Oh, Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O oh Lord, you know it all together. There's absolutely nothing that our God is not aware of. Nothing. Verse 
God's power to bring down those who are mighty is a theme in Daniel. Because this isn't the last king that we're going to interact with in Daniel. The message is not do the right thing and God will give you power like Daniel. I mean, look, he's got the bling and the clothes and he's there. If you do the right thing, you're going to get all the good things. The message is more one like 1 Peter 5, 6, which says, humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time, he may exalt you. Have you learned that the world's idols are empty and powerless? Fame and fortune promise their rewards, but they are fickle masters at best. Beauty is fleeting and power is deceptive. None of these things can ever deliver the satisfaction that they say they can. The Lord is the one that should truly put us in awe. We were even praying about that this morning in the prayer meeting as we opened the Psalms and we're reading the Psalms, looking at the awe and wonder and holiness of our God. God brought the greatest nation to its knees. God could do that in our country. Let us never be so arrogant to think that we are untouchable. The Lord is the one that's given us the strength and influence that he has, and it's the Lord who could take us to our knees if he chooses to do so. And if the last six months haven't been testimony to that, I don't know what can, but hopefully this will help us to be in awe of God. Now, that's not meant to cause us to live in fear, but rather to understand the statement, the fear of the Lord. Let's understand that statement, the fear of the Lord. When we stand in his presence, we have nothing to boast. So let's humble ourselves and acknowledge our dependence on God. We see this in the life of Daniel, who wasn't seeking prominence or position. Rather, he pursued character. He didn't need the money that Belshazzar was throwing his way. He knew where his provision was going to come from. He humbly acknowledged his dependence on God. How are you doing that, friends? Whether it's the way that you give of your time, talents, and treasures whether it's trusting in him or pursuing heavenly rewards. The king was not the humble servant because he didn't acknowledge his dependence on God, but Daniel did. Number three, a humble servant knows their days are numbered. Look back at verse 26. Remember those, those fancy words that we don't really know if we're pronouncing them right or not. Mene, mene, tekel, and parson. Mene means God has numbered the days of your kingdom. Now, in this text, Daniel's certainly speaking to the king and saying, your days are numbered and today is your last day. But we know from Psalm 139, 16, it says, your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there were none of them. God has numbered your days. 
He's numbered the days of each and every person here. He's numbered the days of those sweet children who were standing up here not that long ago. He's numbered our days. So let's live today in light of that day because we don't know when the last day is going to be. And older saints who are here, let Daniel's example stir you up. Don't think that if you've ticked over into the 60s or into the 70s or into the 80s or into the 90s, like that it's time to coast. Daniel's doing anything but coasting. God has more to do with you and through you. Daniel served till his last breath. God's calling you to serve till your last breath. You don't know when God's going to ask you to do something that may be even more significant than you did in the 50 years that you've already been walking with Jesus. So I want to encourage you today, as long as God gives you breath, he has work for you to do. Whether you've lived 80 or eight, we don't know when tomorrow will come, but we must be humbled by the fact that our days are numbered. Number four, a humble servant knows he will be weighed in the balance and found wanting. Look at verse 27. You have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. We really, I really love to read a passage like this and go, I'm identifying with Daniel. That's what I'm going to do when I'm 80. I'm going to walk in room and say the right thing. Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We are part of the human race that Romans 1 says did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. We became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man. The reality is, friends, is without God's sovereign mercy, we are left wanting, facing judgment. That's number five. A humble servant knows judgment is coming. Look again back at your Bibles. Your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. And then skip down to 30. That very night, Belshazzar the Chaldean was killed and Darius the Mede received the kingdom being about 62 years old. This is what we know from history. On that night, the Persians diverted the course of the Euphrates River and penetrated Babylon's defenses. So they diverted the course of the river so they could no longer have the water rushing through. And where the water came into the city, now that the water was going someplace else, all of the enemy came running through that tunnel, funneling the troops under the city's walls and through the drained riverbed. The city was conquered. Belshazzar was killed. The party was over. The prophet's words rang true and echo words from Galatians 6, God is not mocked. They echo words from Romans 1, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness. And from Ecclesiastes 12, God will bring every deed into judgment, even every secret thing, whether good or evil. Babylon was brought to its knees overnight. There's no human structure 
no wall we can build high enough. No action that we can do hidden from the eyes of God that can protect us from the judgment of God. Our society encourages us to, to be calloused, to sin, to actually call what is wrong right. And God says, be sure your sin will find you out. God will bring every deed into judgment, every secret thing. I know this is weighty. I even thought as I was coming this morning, we're going to have a bunch of guests here. Maybe I should just, we should go someplace else, some, some happy verse. But this is where we are. And this was meant for the original readers and for us to stop us in our tracks. We don't like to feel uncomfortable as Americans. We do everything we can to divert uncomfortability, whether it's kind of breaking things up with a joke or we just like to try to easy or whether we try to make life easier by various different things because we just don't like to be uncomfortable. We don't like to feel the weight of things that are hard. Particularly, we don't like anyone to tell us that we're wrong. And so the weight of this is designed by the Lord. But we need to know that these words, Mene, Tekel, Perez, they're not ultimately the handwriting against Belshazzar. It is all for us, the handwriting of God for us to warn us if we are in sin, to stop in that, to stop in that way that we're living and to respond like Nebuchadnezzar did. Don't, don't end up like Belshazzar did. Remember what happened to Nebuchadnezzar. That's the opportunity that we have. James 4 says, but he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. There's a call for us to come. Let this weight not keep you there. The Lord is bringing this weight not to keep you there, not to press you down and make you feel horrible. No, he's bringing this to you so that you will stop where you are and look up. Look up to Christ because he had no outward beauty or majesty. He wasn't clothed with the fanciest of attire. Jesus virtually had no possessions and relatively few followers. He was a humble carpenter. He wasn't the emperor of an earthly kingdom. Yet Jesus knew the history of the sinfulness of man. And he came to save. Jesus completely submitted himself to God. Jesus knew his days were numbered because he came to live every single one of them perfectly so that he could be the perfect sacrifice on a cross. Jesus' life was weighed, and he was found perfect. He was not wanting in any way. Yet Jesus went and faced judgment, the judgment that we deserved. He didn't drink a cup of defiance. 
he drank fully and completely the cup of God's wrath so that we do not have to experience judgment. So the cross for us stands both as the ultimate warning of the consequences of sin and as the greatest expression of love for sinners. If God did not love, he would not graciously warn. And he has warned. So I would encourage you, if you have never trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ, see Christ here. Because this is meant to point us ultimately to Christ. Because the final word is not he's killed. The final word comes from Christ. It is finished. So if you would trust in him, you would become part of his family and he will change you and transform you and wash your sins clean. So I'd encourage you to speak with someone before you leave today or call someone if you're watching from home. Closing, I want to share a story with you. Lieutenant Colonel Brian Birdwell recounted his harrowing experience of being in the section of the Pentagon that was struck by the 9-11 attackers. The hallway in which he was walking was immediately enveloped in flame as an 80-ton aircraft traveled at 520 miles per hour and it struck the building. The force of the impact knocked him from his feet, and he temporarily lost consciousness. He awoke surrounded by fire, and he was on fire and without orientation. He, he didn't know where he was. He said that he knew he was facing a ghastly death and wanted to flee, but he didn't know which direction to run. The wrong choice would send him deeper into the flames, but he had to make a choice. So he ducked his head and ran, screaming, Jesus, I'm coming to see you. And whether he headed toward life or death, he still knew he was heading in the right direction. Now, obviously, we have the story, so it turned out he had a few more years on this earth, in this life. But we don't have to wonder what direction to, want to run. In his mercy, the Lord has shown us the consequences of sin and the mercy of his son so that we can run toward him. I know this is a sobering story, but God shows us the consequences of sin so that we don't stay in them, but so that we run to Christ if you've believed lies or if you've fallen into temptation, there's a direction to run. And that direction is to the Savior. He doesn't want you to sit under the weight of the struggle. He doesn't want you to sit under the weight of the mistakes that you've made. He doesn't want to sit. He doesn't want you to sit in condemnation. He wants you to come running to him because he's going to offload that burden. Because number one, he's paid that penalty on the cross so that your conscience can be clear. You don't have to walk around with this backpack on your back carrying it around anymore. Yes, judgment is real, but it was fully and absolutely and completely accomplished on the cross of Christ. A thousand were invited to Belshazzar's banquet table, but thousands upon thousands are going to be invited to a table that's the marriage supper 
of the lamb. All who've been washed in the blood of the lamb will be there. We will never cease to be amazed that we're seated at that table. And at that banquet, there will be no place for our pride or for toasting our achievements. Rather, every single person who will be there will confess freely that they've been saved by God's grace and purified by God's mercy. On that day, there will be no heavenly interruptions. There will be no kingdom coming in to divide the kingdom because his kingdom will have no end. His kingdom will not be defeated and no one can challenge his authority and he will never rule with arrogance, but only with humility and love. And the kingdom will be formed with those of us who are washed in the blood of the lamb. So the warning is turned to wonder of our great king. Let's pray. Father, Father, we could quickly run on to the next thing. A temptation is for us right now to want to run to the next thing. We want to, to lift the weight off. But I ask, Lord, right now, as we take some time to pray and as we take some time to sing, that you help us to just wait, to wait on you. If you have to speak something to us, if you've brought conviction in any way, I pray, God, that uh, each one here would would experience the freedom of coming before you because of what Jesus has done and confessing that sin, whether it's for the first time or whether it's coming again. Lord, have us experience the wonder that we shouldn't be at the table, but we are at the table. We should be experiencing what this king experienced and immediately experiencing judgment, but we don't because of what Jesus has done. And I pray, God, that we would be reminded of that reality, that any weight that we feel is turned to wonder. I pray, God, that you'd minister to us this morning. Show us afresh your amazing holiness and your wonderful mercy and pour out your grace on us this morning. We ask this, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Harvest Lakeshore Sermon Podcast. Harvest Lakeshore exists to glorify God through the fulfillment of the Great Commission. For more information about us, visit harvestlakeshore.org.